Our text for this morning is Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. And this is God's word for us today. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, uh, When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Would you pray with me? Lord, it is obvious that there is a weight and an importance to this text. The judgment is real, significant. We would ask you to prepare us for it. Let none of us here, let none who hear my voice stand before you unprepared. But work the mighty work of your Holy Spirit to accomplish the salvation of souls and the sanctification of believers. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about his return and about living in the age before he returns. We've seen Jesus call his followers to stand strong, And to remain faithful, even if there's a really long delay between the time of his ascension to heaven in Acts chapter 1, 2,000 years ago, and his return whenever that day comes. And in today's passage, as we wrap up the study of this discourse of Jesus on the Mount of Olives, we'll see some significant uh, things. Jesus is going to teach us about the judgment to come about those who are his followers, and about those who are not his followers. 
If you're a note taker, be ready to find four key, I almost want to say topics that are the points. And under those, we're going to make several observations about the judgment to come and about where you and I stand before the Lord. And really, there's a lot to get to, so let's just jump right in and see what the Savior has to tell us, okay? Point number one this morning, all face the judgment of Christ. All face the judgment seat of Christ. Put the word seat in there if you didn't get it. All face the judgment seat of Christ. We'll start with verses 31 through 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Now, friends, that text is simple. When the Savior returns, he will sit in judgment over all of humanity. And as part of that judgment, Jesus will divide the world into two very clear, very distinct groups. And we're going to find that those two groups face two very different eternities. And the point for you to grasp as a certainty is that you will face the judgment seat of Christ. Now, why would I say that? If you are part of the human race, then you are part of the all nations who will stand before Jesus. I assume I do not need to quiz you as to whether or not you fit into this category. And, and you're going to be placed by Jesus into one of two groups. Let's look at the text a little more closely here, and we'll make two really quick observations about the judgment to come and what's coming. First, here's the observation one. Christ will return. Jesus Christ will return. Verse 31 begins with the phrase, when the Son of Man comes. Please note, this is not an if statement. This is not a conditional clause. This is not something, uh, if Noah were programming a computer right now, where he would have to do an if-then, right? This is not a may or may not occur. Jesus says that a day is coming when he will come back to this earth. Now, dear friends, you need to see this as a certainty. Do not let yourself live with the mindset that somehow, some way, you will not stand before the throne of the God who made you. Second observation, Christ himself is the final judge. The picture of Jesus sitting on this glorious throne and separating the people of the world into two groups, that is a picture of judgment. And it's important that you and I realize that this task of judging humanity is the right and the responsibility of the Lord Jesus. In John 5, 22 to 24, Jesus said, the Father judges, you know who the Father judges according to this passage? Want to guess? The Father judges no one, Jesus says, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Did you hear that from Jesus? Within the mysterious inner workings of the Holy Trinity, it is the task of the Son of God to sit in judgment over all of humanity. Some of you are not finding this to be a surprise, but I want you to think about its significance. Compare it to the modern world system politically correct notion that all religions are basically the same. How often do you hear that, right? Many people from many nations believe that all religions lead to God. Well, I guess they all lead to the throne of God and judgment, but, you know, they don't lead to God in a good way, right? A lot of people believe that a good Muslim and a good Buddhist and a good earth worshiper and a good scientific naturalist and a good Christian, they all take different paths, but they all find what they seek. But how inadequate is that view if it really is true that Jesus, not some external third party, is the judge? If Jesus is actually the one who determines the eternal outcome of every individual human being, In John 14, verse 6, the Lord Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You heard the absolute nature of that, right? There is no way for a person to come to God the Father except through Jesus. No person finds the forgiveness of God or life with the Creator apart from doing so through the Son of God. And remember, those are the direct claims of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus says he's the judge. Jesus says, you can't make it to God apart from going through him and his grace. And thoughts like this led the the writer of the letter to the Hebrews to conclude that rejecting Jesus is a damnable offense. Listen to Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now listen. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When Jesus comes back, he will sit on his throne. What kind of throne? 
a glorious throne. Don't forget that. And he will separate humanity into two groups. Just like a shepherd dividing the sheep from the goats. Jesus will divide all human beings. And you and I will stand before Jesus. And you and I will be placed in one group or another. We're either going to stand at his right hand or at his left hand. Now, before we look at this further, I want to look back at one other biblical picture of that final judgment. Harold read it for us this morning from Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Listen to this because it will help us to, I think, understand the judgment and the, the, the separating the sheep and the goats better. This, is, this will speak to what we need to understand. Again, it said, Then I saw a great white throne. Sounds like a glorious throne. And him who was seated on it. Who's seated on that throne in this picture? Jesus. Right? And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There, picture, glorious throne, judgment, right? Notice there are two kinds of books. And I think it's safe to say that one of the sets of books symbolizes the record of of the deeds of every person who stands before the throne of God. It's possible, you need to understand, it is possible for you to stand before God and have your eternity decided based on the content of your life works. Do any of you want to take that deal? Every person who is judged based on their own works will fall short of the standard required for heaven. Thus, if Jesus passes judgment on your life based on your deeds, hell is your ultimate and eternal destination. That, by the way, as I risk a side note, that principle would be very helpful, I think, for Christians not to forget as we share the gospel with people who want to make us look bad for not sharing their morality. As if our lack, as if we say, oh, well, you're going to hell because your morality doesn't match the Bible's morality, that you're not as good as the Bible says a good person is. And by the way, we shouldn't back off of the fact that many people are living outside of the moral commands of God and that they're called to repentance. But truthfully, the world needs to understand if God judges you based on your works in any category, whether you've been really good or really bad, hell is your destination because your good works will never amount to enough good to please God and earn your way into his grace. Can't be done. 
But see, there's another book. It's not just a stack of books that says everything you've done. There's another book. It's the book of life. And if your name is written in the book of life, then you have received from Jesus a full pardon. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus credited you with his perfect righteousness and heaven is your eternal destination if your name is in the book of life. Okay, now, let's come back to our passage and we're going to see those two groups at the judgment. Point number two for this morning. The saved receive reward. The saved receive reward. And I'll read for you uh, 34 to 40. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit your kingdom in, uh, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or, or thirsty and give you drink? Or when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Did it to me. So, again, simple. First we see that Jesus is going to turn to one of the two groups the one at his right hand. And in those days, to stand at a king's right hand was to stand at a place of favor. I have this funny feeling that many of you are thinking, I'm glad I sat on this side of the room today. <laughs> right hand, anyway. Uh, it, it, sorry. Um, he... Those who stand at his right hand, because they are at the place of favor, which is not a surprise, they're the people that are going to be entering into a great reward. Jesus points out here that, that the righteous, that, that those, those who are rewarded, they're people who treated Jesus with several particular kindnesses. But the funny thing is, the faithful... They're surprised. They didn't remember doing those things for Jesus. But Jesus says, as you did such things for the least of these, my brothers, you did them for Jesus himself. Now, the point for the entire section here is this. The saved receive reward from Jesus. One of the two groups who stands before the throne of the Savior has a very positive outcome. And because Jesus is here teaching the church about how we live in the age between the first and second comings of Christ, he's pointing out that the lives of the saved are marked, they're visible, it's obvious who they are because their lives are marked by certain traits full of godly love. So let's again, let's make some observations here. First this, this is cool. The saved inherit the kingdom. That's an important word here, inherit it. They do not earn it. 
Verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's important you got, that you get this because if you don't get this, if you don't get that this is an inheritance, you might be led to think that the righteous people earned their position in heaven based on the acts of kindness and service that Jesus later mentions in the judgment. But it turns out that before the Savior ever says anything about the good deeds of the righteous, he first highlights the fact that the righteous are receiving an inheritance, a gift that a child receives but never earns. In John 1, 12 and 13, Jesus, or John writing about Jesus said, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As John wrote about salvation, as John wrote about forgiveness, he points out that you and I, We're adopted as children of God, if you're a child of God, but your adoption is not based on anything you do. Those who come to Jesus have been born of God. Thus, salvation is the gift of God. Another observation from this verse is this. The inheritance that we received was prepared for us Do you see the words of when it was prepared? Before time began. Jesus calls the reward of the saved the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Interestingly, in the book of Revelation, when speaking about that book of life that we talked about, two times in Revelation, God points out that there are people whose names were not written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8, Revelation 17, 8, both say that. But in contrast, God tells us here that he prepared a reward of salvation for his elect before time began. In Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6, the word of God says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Romans 8, 29 and 30 it says something very similar. It says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn, firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what we know from, from this and from other passages in the scripture is that the book of life, the list of the saved, the list of the children of God was completed before God made the world. This is the biblical doctrine of predestination. The the reward for the saved, for those God would save, it, it was made, it was prepared from before the foundation of the world. Third observation regarding the saved. The saved will have lives marked by fairly ordinary love and kindness for the people of God. You need to understand that. Fairly ordinary acts of love and kindness toward the people of God. 
list of things Jesus said the righteous did. They're simple. I was hungry. What's the solution to that? You gave me food. I was thirsty. What's the solution to that? Give me a drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. You tell me, friends, which of those is the kind of things in general that any Christian cannot do? I mean, seriously, it's one of those like, oh my word, what a massive sacrifice. No. How many of you have ever given somebody who needed food some food? (laughs) Moms? Right? How many of you have ever given somebody a drink who needed a drink? How many of you have ever welcomed somebody into your life, a stranger, that, you know what, I I know you, I know you're a child of God, and I just, I want to open my life to you and be your friend? How many of you have ever cared for a sick person? Have you ever given clothes to somebody like that? Again, we don't see that as much today, but it's possible. And in times of persecution, it's no surprise to think that a believer might go visit a believer in prison, would it be? These are not difficult concepts here requiring difficult interpretation. Oh my goodness, I don't know what Jesus meant. But there is a more difficult interpretive question for the Christian. This is not a question of should you and I be the kind of people who show this kind of love. The actual question, the most debated part of this entire passage, by the way, is to whom are we being called by Jesus to show this kind of love? Who is to be your and my priority? When the righteous said they don't remember doing these kindnesses for Jesus, the Savior said, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So here's the question, friends. This is important. Who are the least of these, Jesus' brothers? And there are two possible answers. Either Jesus is saying that doing these acts of kindness for any human being is doing it to Jesus. Or Jesus is saying that doing these kindnesses, especially for the followers of Christ, is the same as ministering to Jesus. You see the difference in the two? Who are you primarily called to serve, the entire world or the body of Christ? That's the question. So which is it? I believe that the more biblical understanding of this text is that doing kindness to other followers of the Lord Jesus is doing kindness to the Savior himself. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do kind things for other people. But the way to understand this text is to see that the Savior equates love for other Christians as love for him. How do I come up with that? Well, in the gospel, according to Matthew, who does Jesus say his family is? Matthew 12, 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus said that the one who does his Father's will is his family. Let's think about it from a completely opposite angle. When Jesus confronted Saul of Tarsus, later the Apostle Paul, do you all remember what Jesus said to Saul about his persecution of Christians? It's Acts 9, verses 4 and 5. It says, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? What's he say? Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul, was, was Saul actually persecuting the physical person of Jesus? He was going after Christians. But Jesus equated that with persecuting Jesus. Similarly, Jesus shows us in Matthew 25 that doing kindness for believers is doing kindness for Jesus. A couple of verses that just may add speak to this for you. John 13, 34 and 35 read, A new commandment, this is Jesus speaking, I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Or just one more, Galatians 6.10, Paul writing says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now again, please do not misunderstand me. I'm not telling you that the word of God says don't do kind things to lost people in need. I'm not saying that. We display the glory of God when we do good things that help other people. After all, all human beings have been created by God in the image of God for the glory of God. But the priority, and this really needs to ring in your ears, Christian friends, the priority, the first priority of the follower of Jesus is that you honor Jesus by doing good, especially to those who are part of the body of Christ. Those who are genuinely Christians, according to this judgment, those who are genuinely Christians have lives that are marked by acts of kindness toward the people of God. Now, do you think that those kind acts toward Christians save you? No, of course not. But a genuine salvation leads to genuine obedience to the commands of God. And that kind of obedience is going to come so naturally to the one who loves the Lord and who loves the local church that that person is going to look at the Lord on the day of judgment and say, I can't believe that the things I did actually mattered because my kindness to my brothers and sisters in Christ was so normal, I can't imagine being rewarded for it. So if you picture the judgment, you know Christ is on his throne. You know he will look to see if your name's in the book of life. No, again, he already knows. He wrote the book, but you get it, right? And if you are a genuine follower of Jesus, if you're someone who has repented and believed in Christ for salvation, your name's already going to have been in that book from before the dawn of time. 
Then those other books, those books of deeds, you know what they're going to show Jesus? They're going to show Jesus that your life included, included kind acts, loving acts, caring acts toward the people of God. And the Lord will rightly reward you for living as a transformed person in the Spirit of God under the grace of Christ. So you might say to yourself, how in the world is this supposed to impact us? We know, don't we, that heaven is our eternal inheritance because of Jesus? We know that. We know that living out faith includes doing kindnesses, especially to those who are part of the family of God. We know that. So as you and I live in the age between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, you and I will desire, if you're a Christian, you will desire to serve Jesus more, to love Jesus more by you showing more love to the people who are part of the family of God right here. And you know what that means? You're going to pray for each other. You're going to pray for Christian missionaries. You're going to support Christian missionaries. You're going to care for sick believers. You're going to care for needy believers. You're going to work to become the kind of person who would take a, a, a meal to a, a person who in the house mom is sick and there just needs a couple extra hands. Or you'll jump in to try to help somebody who's overloaded with the things that's going on in their lives. You will open your home to one another to show genuine hospitality, not just a, you know, a, a, a maybe we'll have dinner one time, maybe once, but you'll actually say, I want you in my life. I want you to know me. I want to know you. And you will know that all of the love that you show in the name of Jesus Christ in the family of God, you are actually showing that love to the Lord Jesus himself. Okay, third point. These will come faster. The lost receive judgment. Third point is the lost receive judgment. Uh, verses 41 to 45 read, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So the opposite side of the coin here is very clear for those on the Savior's left. One group received an inheritance of great joy and great reward. But there's one group that's going to receive the fiery justice of God. Dear friends, understand this. We are sinners before a holy God. And if we are not forgiven by God, the wrath of God is all that awaits us. Know that if you do not before the day you die or before Jesus comes back, if you don't come to Jesus for mercy, you will be condemned by Jesus. He told you he's the only way for you to have a right relationship with God. If you refuse to come to God by getting under the grace of Jesus, you are inviting God to punish you for sinning against him. And none of us can stand against that punishment because it's, an a, punishment, it's a punishment of eternal death. 
I mean, again, think about this for a second. Who's the only, what did Jesus say about the only way to get to God is through him? Who's the judge that says whether you get to God? It's him. Can you fathom having the audacity to stand before Jesus on his throne and say, I know you should have made another way? No. Now, quick couple observations here. First, notice that the fire of hell was created by God for the devil and his angels. The saved inherit the kingdom prepared for them by God before the ages began. Those who reject Jesus are choosing to suffer the fire of hell that God made for the devil. In the doctrine of predestination, God chooses and draws people to himself for grace. It's an active work of God. At the same time, the ones who are lost are clearly left to their own free choices, and they willingly choose to go against the Lord. So in a very simplistic explanation, and we talked about this much longer in Sunday school, actually, in some ways today, God deserves the credit for everyone who is saved. All who are lost have no one to blame but themselves. Second, note that a sign of being unconverted. You want to know what a sign is? If you want to check and say, man, I wonder if I might be lost. One sign of an unconverted heart is you don't love the people of God. These people did not do the kindnesses for the people of God as did the righteous. The lost are shocked because they are like, well, Jesus, if I had seen you in need, I would have helped. But I didn't see you. I just saw an overwhelmed mom over there. That's not you. I just, I just saw a brother in Christ who was really down in the dumps, but I didn't see you, so I didn't jump in. See, they didn't realize to neglect and not care for the people of God is to slight the Savior himself. And don't be confused. Just because a person does kind things does not mean he is a Christian. But I'll tell you this. A person who has no love for the people of God is giving strong evidence that they are not a person who has come to Jesus for salvation. So where does all this lead? Fourth point, last point. Heaven and hell are eternal destinations. Heaven and hell are eternal destinations. Verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the end of the matter, very, very simple. Those who did not come to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness will depart from Jesus to eternal punishment. Those who did come to Jesus for mercy and forgiveness will go forward into eternal life, eternal joy, eternal reward. And the key word that I want you to hear in that last verse, it's said twice in that verse, is eternal. Do you Christians believe heaven lasts forever? I hope you do, right? Wouldn't it stink if you found out, eh, nah, it's a, it's a short-term rental, you know? Heaven is not an Airbnb. This is, this is long-lasting home forever in the glory of God, whatever that new creation is like. But listen, friends, if heaven lasts forever, then so too does hell. You cannot have one without the other and be anywhere near consistent with dealing with the language of the word of God. How you respond to Jesus is a decision that lasts forever. So let me remind you of what must take place if you want to be forgiven. 
Yes, it's the work of God, but how does it work out in your life? You've got to believe in Jesus and turn away from sin to get under his grace. Believe that you are a sinner. Believe that Jesus died to pay for your sin. Decide that you want to submit to Jesus. Pray. Ask him for grace. Jesus is clear that the one who comes to him in repentant faith will be saved. And what we see in this section of scripture is that the one who does come to Jesus, the one who does come to Jesus in faith and repentance, will then have a life that will be marked by genuine love and kindness, not just for God, but love for the people of God. Part of repenting of your sin, Christians, part of repenting of your sin is you learning to treat the people of God with the kind of goodness and grace that would honor Jesus. Now, pulling back from this passage, we see this. The Savior has given us a picture of the judgment to come. Jesus is going to return. He's going to judge. Here's the question. Will you be ready? If you've not yet come to Jesus for salvation, you know what the most important thing is you can hear from me today? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And if you do know Jesus, which I would assume most of you do, hear the commendation that Jesus gave to his faithful. You become a person who loves and shows genuine kindness to other believers. Offer food, offer help, show hospitality, support the persecuted, shape your life. Again, I wish I could find a way to say this stronger so you get it. Your life has to be shaped so that it shows that you see the people of God as tremendously important to you. Because ministering to other people in the body of Christ is ministering to Jesus Christ himself. Let's bow together and pray.